The drought had lasted for three years and the effects were devastating. Famine, death, and when King Ahab sees Elijah, he blames him for all this suffering. Uh, but Elijah will have none of Ahab's gaslighting. And he puts it right back on him in verse 18. You are the reason there has been no rain. And so he's going to expose Ahab's godless approach to life, the powerlessness of the gods. He's going to expose this in front of everyone. He tells Ahab to send and gather all Israel to meet at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah. The Asherah was the uh, uh, wife, you might say, of the god Baal. And so there are two groups, and Elijah tells them to bring them, but the 400 prophets of Asherah decide not to show up. So it ends up being Elijah against 450 prophets of Baal. 450 false prophets, one true prophet. Once everyone is there, as we read in verse 21, Elijah issues a challenge. Uh, and the challenge, what's surprising, is not to Ahab and not to the false prophets. The challenge goes to God's people. And he says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Israel was hesitating or limping between worshiping Yahweh and worshiping Baal. You ever find yourself trying to accomplish two almost opposing things at the same time? I grew up playing baseball, and we didn't have what people have now or kids have now with coach pitch or pitching machine. From the time we began to play baseball, a player pitched, which means you got hit and hit often because very few of them could control their pitches. So there were days I would go home from baseball practice bruised from here down to my knee where I'd gotten hit in the left side by the pitcher. And after a few years of this, I just developed a fear of the baseball that almost became subconscious. And when I got into the older leagues, I, and came to an end, I would get in the batter's box and when the, the pitcher was just about to release the ball, I would step toward third base. I was stepping out of the batter's box and trying to hit at the same time and you cannot do that. It will not work. So I was between two opinions, get out of the way and stay here and hit the ball. And Elijah says spiritually, he said, why are you limping between these two opinions? You must decide whether to worship the true God, Yahweh, or whether to worship Baal. So that's the challenge. Make the choice. And what does it tell us in verse 21? What's their response? Silence. Not a word. Why? Well, the easiest way to be noncommittal to anything is to just remain silent. Do you believe this? Just remain silent. And that's what they did. The, the chief expression of non-commitment. So what's the, the proof? Here comes the proposition. So Elijah, in verses 22 and 24, sets up the conditions for the test. And he says, we're going to prepare two bulls for sacrifices. And then we will call on our gods to see who will answer. And the, the prophets of Baal will go first. And then I will go. He's giving them home court advantage, you might say. 
And he reminds them that they greatly outnumber him. And so they get the first pick of the bulls, and then they put the, the wood on the, the sacrifice, sacrificial place, and then he lets them go first. And here's the bottom line. He doesn't say who will burn up, you know, we will test God to see who will burn up the sacrifice. He says we will test to see which is the true God with which one answers prayer. Which one will answer our prayer? The God who can answer prayer is the God to be worshipped. And so the prophets of Baal go first, verses 25 to 29. First, they call on, they call on their God. Uh, all morning, it tells us. We don't know whether this was three, four, five hours, how long this lasted up until the middle of the day. They call upon the name of Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there's no voice and no one answers. And second, they begin to dance around in a frenzy, trying to get Baal's attention, to get him to answer their prayer. And all of this accomplishes nothing. And Elijah responds to their prayers and their frenzied dancing by taunting them. And he uses sarcasm. Now, the sarcasm only makes sense when you realize that in ancient times, that typically for a, a god or goddess, humans would think that they participated in all human activities. So the gods would eat and sleep and so forth. Elijah is taking that belief and taunting them with it. Well, maybe he's gone on a journey. Uh, maybe he's taking a nap and so forth. And so the summary of all of their, their pleading that even increases after Elijah taunts them, it says in verse 29, and it's really one of the saddest verses in the Bible, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Have you ever heard someone say or maybe even said yourself, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about your belief? <laughs> That's foolishness. If anybody was very sincere about their belief, it was these guys. I personally think they truly believed. They believed in Baal. They believed that he was answered, that he would answer. And yet, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now it's Elijah's turn. He calls all the people to him, and he rebuilds the altar, uh, and he properly puts on 12 stones. And so he's reminding them of their heritage. This is nothing new. He is rebuilding the broken down places. They knew what all this was symbolic of, where they would offer sacrifices to God. So this is, once again, it's nothing new. Elijah is calling them to return to where, from where they've fallen. He's calling them to return to God and to repent, not to go in a brand new direction. So he rebuilds the, the altar with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. <clears throat> and then, probably to everyone's surprise, we didn't see this coming, he calls for water. And not a little bit of water, a lot of water. And he drenches the whole thing. The bull, the altar, the stones, once, twice, three times. And they would have known wet things do not burn. Now, I was one of those dads that was punished from time to time by having to take the family camping when the kids were growing up. But, uh, admit, you know, the campfire is the, the climax of the whole thing. And it, I never said, hey, kids, go find us some good wet firewood. Make sure it's really wet, dripping wet. That's what we know. Won't. No, you, of course not. Uh, wet wood 
didn't burn any better back then with Elijah than it does with us today. And so they drench this thing. And then Elijah prays. And he draws near to the people. It's repeated twice there that he does this. And he reminds them of their history. And he reminds them that God is the author of this event. Of that God is the author of these sacrifices. And in his prayer in verses 36 and 37, he, he prays for what you can read in less than 30 seconds. So 450 prophets of Baal praying in a frenzy all morning, all afternoon, late into the day, nothing. Elijah prays for less than 30 seconds by what we have recorded here, and boom, shock and awe. And the whole thing is immediately turned to ash. This is a teachable moment. And the response of the people in verse 39 is they turn and they worship God. Now, we have to realize that, yes, this is a dramatic turn back to God. And it was a dramatic thing had just happened. But God was preparing their hearts for three years. Famine in accord with God's promise that when people turned away from him, that's what would happen, the drought, all that. They, their hearts had been prepared for this climactic moment. But we also see judgment in verse 40 and, and following. And we grow a little uncomfortable with this. Not only do we kind of wish the story would end there, but it doesn't. And they put to death these prophets of Baal under Elijah's hand. Well, what's up with that? Was this some act of vengeance? Did Elijah just lose it and go on a rampage? No. We often have a hard time understanding it because we fail to remember that Israel was a theocracy. They were a nation set up to enforce God's law. And he was calling them to do what God had said in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'll read it to you. There are three verses there that describe why this happens. God said, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. In other words, if people come into your, your cities that I'm going to give you and they say, let's go and follow these foreign gods, these, these worthless gods, these, these idols, let's follow them and they lead you away, it goes on in Deuteronomy to say, and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So God had said that if someone led his people into idolatry, then that person should be put to death with the sword. We tend to forget, and one, we're not a theocracy, but idolatry was a great danger to Israel, and it's a great danger to us, and we forget how seriously God takes it. Now, our idols, for most of us, and there are many, maybe just saving face, it may be some materialism. It may be uh, my idol is never to be embarrassed. It may be to accomplish something. It, it, it could be your family. It could be a relationship. It could be a thousand different things. A few lessons as we prepare to come to the Lord's table from this passage. One, we see here, faith is a choice. 
to believe is, is a decision that, that you and I make. Uh, when Jesus was with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee on a boat and they feared for their lives during a storm, he later rebuked them and said, why did you not believe? Where is your faith? He's putting the responsibility on them. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing by his word. And no one else can believe on your behalf. Young people, not, not your, your family, not, uh, not your friends, not your teacher, not your coach, not your pastor. You must choose to believe. So faith is a choice, but we also see that believing and following go together. Some of the Israelites thought they could straddle the fence and waver between two opinions, between worshiping God or Jehovah, but that's impossible. R.C. Sproul just simply said, it is one thing to believe in God, it is quite another to believe God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A few years ago, I mentioned the very notion that, uh, and I think we had a wedding the night before here at, at First Presbyterian, and, and as, as we've had many through the years. And so here's the, where I'm standing from, here's the bride, and here's the groom, and all the, the wedding party, and people standing up around here, and all their family and friends out in the congregation, but, but just hypothetically imagine what if, what if this fellow came out uh, with his, his best man and, and, and he comes out and behind him are about 10 different women and they're standing off to the side and so during the ceremony the bride says, who are they? He says, well those are all my girlfriends. They go with me wherever I go. I'm, I'm going to bring them into this marriage too. And she would say, no you're not. There's not going to be any wedding. It's me only. And we may think, well, I, I can believe in God, and I'll, I'll have all these other things that kind of rule my life. And, and, and may, yeah, you know, kind of a little Baal worship here, a little idol worship there, or a little thing here. I know God doesn't really like it, but I'll just include him with all the rest. Well, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one, love the other, or vice versa. Third, we serve a God who answers prayer. That was the point of the contest. The fire and everything is not, we didn't see that coming. Well, we knew the story, but the whole point was we'll see which God answers prayer. And Elijah in the New Testament is used as an example for us. We would think he's in a category by himself. And yet we're told in the book of James that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And yet he prayed earnestly and it did not rain on the earth for three years. And fourth, there's always hope. You are never too far from God not to turn back. Elijah's prayer, he says, that they may see that you are turning their hearts back to you. Let's us know God had not given up on them. Imagine, three years preceded by not following Jehovah. Three years of drought, which they knew, if they knew anything about the Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures, that that was a sign of God's judgment. And now they, they, they're brought here and they won't even answer Elijah when he says that you must choose. Why do you waver between two opinions? And yet immediately there's a change. The fire falling from heaven was to show not only the power of God, it was to show his acceptance of his people. 
Hearts can turn quickly toward God, but God had been preparing them for years. So in reality, the, the drought was a display of God's mercy and grace. In a crowd this size, larger than we expected. I thought it'd be me and Barbara <laughs> and Chuck and maybe the person doing the sound back there. I, I, we really didn't know when we said it's time to move inside. Um, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says God disciplines those he loves. And we're all going through strange times, but some of you may, may uh, I would suppose, be going through extremely difficult times of one thing or another. And maybe God has brought that into your life. I'm never one to try and interpret circumstances theologically, unless the Bible's clear on that. But maybe God's brought that into your life and he's got your attention. And maybe this has been going on for some time. And he's not finished. He's not finished with you yet. And you should be assured. You should be assured that he's not giving up on you. You don't know if you might be on the very verge of God doing something in your life you've never even imagined. Which I would have no idea what that might be. Maybe God's getting ready to do something that he's been preparing you for for years. Because he hasn't given up on you yet. We think about this as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment. This is a time to decide. We have to decide. You have to decide for yourself. Am I in Christ? Am I walking with him or am I not? Do I partake of this sacrament as an expression of faith? Or do I let the elements pass? Realizing I've, I've not yet put my trust in him or I am, I am very rebellious at the moment and I need God to give me repentance. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have not finished with us, even by the fact that we're alive today, that you continue to do that work, that good work, Philippians says, that you began within us until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you that you are a God who answers prayer. Thank you that you are a God who uh, gives faith, and we choose to believe as well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.